just as white identifying allies have to go into their communities and not put the burden on black people to fix white supremacy, male identifying allies have a specific role to play and have to play it inside of this space, which is we need to work with our boys and help our boys get their shit together because we are tolerating a whole lot of, uh, I'm going to cuss again, fuckery. (laughs) And that fuckery is causing a whole lot of harm to a whole lot of people who don't have systemic power. And it's all based on some bullshit. Hey, everyone, welcome back to another episode of We Hate Politics a podcast where we don't really hate politics, we just hate what it does to policy. My name is Brandon McCoy. Uh, This episode is about reproductive rights, abortion access, Roe versus Wade, uh, things that are really on top of a lot of people's minds right now, especially with the recent confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. We get into a lot of nitty-gritty details, uh, anticipating a lot of the fights that we know are to come across the country to ensure that folks continue to have access to abortion. One unique area of conversation in this episode is how to engage men in the fight for abortion access and abortion rights. Uh, it's actually something that Oren has a lot of experience in as he founded an organization that focuses on just that. And also we are joined by a wonderful special guest, uh, my wife, Liz Mon, who is a volunteer uh, for an abortion access fund here in New Jersey, and uh, she, she brings a lot of her experience to the conversation. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks, as always, for hanging out, and uh, let's get right to it. <laughs> and some of my favorite podcasts don't even like say who they are. They just start their conversation. Often. Yeah, we're not that famous, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there. Talking about like Chris Hayes's. Yeah, <laughs> even like Jenkins and Jones. It's just three dudes talking about the NBA. Um, but um, things have happened recently with regards to uh, a new Supreme Court justice. And obviously, a lot of folks are concerned about a lot of things with regards to uh, Amy Coney Barrett's present, presence on the court. But if I got to imagine the top concern is around reproductive rights and reproductive health issues. Um, And so for those who don't know, Oren is the founder of Men for Choice. (laughs) Uh, And it's been around for how long, Oren? We're a little bit more than five years old now. Oh, man. How how time flies. That's excellent. That's right. Kind of crazy, actually. And so we'll get into that a little bit. And then actually we're joined today by, if you don't know by now, this is Brandon. And we are joined today for this episode. Uh, we have a special guest of my wife, who we just saw. Boy, my wife. So be very, very careful. <laughs> See, you did it before I could even do it. Uh, we just watched Borat. It was very good. But my wife, Liz, uh, Liz Mon, who uh, is actually a board member for an organization here in New Jersey called New Jersey Abortion Access Fund. And uh, Liz, why don't you say hi and describe NJAP a little bit. Hi. So as Brennan said, I'm on the board. I'm actually the treasurer of uh, the New Jersey Abortion Access Fund. And what we do is, um, like a lot of local abortion funds, is we work with clinics to provide um, grants for women who may, or women and individuals, I should say, who may find um, monetary barriers to getting abortion. So even in a state that, you know, a lot of people say New Jersey is, you know, very easy to get, you know, an abortion. It's not necessarily, and there's still a lot of financial barriers right. um, for the women we serve, for the women and individuals. Right. And so that's, like like Liz said, you know, even a state like New Jersey, where people sort of look at it as like, oh, it's a bastion of access and sort of, you know, support for reproductive rights. 
uh, no, we still got our issues here. Um, then I think there's a lot of things that we're, we're going to get into today with regards to how folks in New Jersey are preparing for, have been preparing for uh, Justice Barrett reality and what might happen next. Um, but Orin, why don't you talk a little bit about Men for Choice? I, you know, it's, you do a lot of great work and it's something that I don't think a lot of people talk about the need for getting men to be more, not only more aware and understanding of sort of the basic issues around reproductive rights, but also active and mobilized. And so mm-hmm. can you just talk about like why you even decided to start the organization and sort of what it is that uh, y'all focus on and your priorities are? Yeah. So uh, Men for Choice uh, was started to activate, educate, and mobilize male allies into the fight for reproductive freedom. So our basic goal is to is to focus primarily on taking guys, male identifying folk who are passively pro-choice, and I'm going to define that specifically in a second, and move them to active partners and supporters and allies in this fight. There are something like 60 million men in America who believe that abortion should be legal in most or all cases at a very surface level definition of what it means to be pro-choice. That would be it. Do you think that other people should have the right to make decisions about their own body and their own health care and their own reproductive decisions? And so Men for Choice has a 501c3 education arm called Men for Choice Education. We have a 501c4 advocacy arm called Men for Choice Advocacy. And we have an Illinois state pack called Men for Choice Pack. As you can tell, we're not terribly creative with the naming conventions. <laughs> so it's pretty straightforward what each one is doing. Um, yeah. Through the C3, we focus specifically on activation and education. In particular, uh, what we have learned in doing this work is that the average guy doesn't really understand the impact of laws that sort of roll back rights to to an abortion and or access to reproductive health care. Uh, as a byproduct of laws that are seeking to rob people of their right to an abortion. Mm -hmm. And so the education arm of our work is focused on helping guys better understand that as the first piece. And then secondarily working to sort of shift the frame of this issue in their mind from one that is gendered and about abortion to one that is universal and about freedom. Um, too many guys sort of just treat this as a women's issue and too many guys think this is just a debate about abortion. It's certainly a debate about abortion. Um, but what does abortion actually mean for women, trans men, non-binary folks who can get pregnant? And, you know, Liz, you're probably a better person to say this than I am uh, as someone who is most directly impacted. But for us, the way that we look at this is no person can be free if they don't control their own body, their own healthcare, and their own reproductive decisions. And so it's really critical to help guys understand sort of those two things. And then the the third piece of this puzzle is how to engage the right way, why to engage a certain way, uh, to give guys a playbook, so to speak, because, you know, I'm sure you would agree with this, Brandon, even for like-minded guys in our circles, right, these sort of progressive circles, almost all of whom are pro-choice, most of us are, aren't actually active and most of us don't know what to say and how to say it. And it's in some ways like the struggle of um, white allies in the fight for racial justice. There's mm-hmm. lots of white people out there who want to, to, to do better and to be a part of the solution, but they're, they're, they're worried and nervous and anxious about you know, not saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, especially we're on the periphery of these movements. And so we're trying to give guys that playbook, both so that they can step in the right way as allies. And most importantly, because this is how we center our work, is we believe guys should be talking to guys. Our focus should be peer to peer, which means I also need to make sure in the way that I engage you, Brandon, that I'm engaging you in a way that will resonate with you and that I'm engaging you in a way that will not further harm the movement by sort of pushing forward harmful narratives 
which dehumanize, objectify, or stigmatize the people or the acts uh, mm -hmm. or the act of an abortion, which is a complicated thing when you don't know what it, what all that means. I'm sure we can get into some of those specifics, but that's who we are and what we do. So that's actually a good sort of transition point because I want to ask you this question, but then I want to get Liz's thoughts on it too. Um, you made the point about in the fight for racial justice, you have a lot of white allies who don't really know what to say. And, you know, sometimes it's awkward. Have you gotten in this space, sometimes similar pushback from women and people who can give birth with regards to like just the entire concept of men for choice and being like, you know, we don't need men centering themselves in this conversation. Has there ever been like sort of a misunderstanding of the purpose or just any drama from the, from the existence of the organization in general? Yeah, we've certainly had some challenges. And I mean, look, let me start by saying, you know, we've learned a lot over the last five plus years of doing this work um, and how we engage, how we, our mission, our org structure, literally top to bottom, everything but the name is, is different than when we first started it uh, in 2015. And that is a byproduct of feedback. Right. And so one of the things I'm actually most proud of in our work is not that we have done it without pushback, but that we have done it in an accountable way that has demonstrated over time that we will listen, we will grow, we will change based on the input we're getting. If you just hear men for choice, and certainly if you see me or some of the other co-founders uh, and not the full team, you might think this is a group of guys, largely white guys stepping up into the, into the repro space. What are these guys doing? But the truth is, if you look at our org structure, if you look at our board, our board is incredibly diverse. Both of our boards are chaired by women of color. Our, our leadership team is half men, half women, uh, in particular women of color. We have a co-executive director structure. So uh, myself and a woman named Renalini Chakraborty, who's this really amazing organizer, uh, who's been part of the National Leadership of the Women's March, work work in collaboration and nothing happens that we don't both agree to. So even in the way that we set up the organizational structure, we have removed systemic power from the men and placed systemic power in the right hands of those most impacted to guide our work. Um, but the focus of our work is still on bringing more guys. There has, there, there, have been times, although not much lately, you know, this kind of the first couple years where there was pushback onto the idea of men for choice. Um, plenty of folks, yeah, I shouldn't say plenty, but at least a small handful of folks um, felt as if there shouldn't be its own, there shouldn't be the, like an organization of its own, that that mm -hmm. was centering of men and the people in it. Um, and, and frankly, if, you know, there were times when I actually thought that we made a mistake in starting it. I no longer do because I act absolutely believe. And I think it's proving itself out that there needs to be an entity that is set up to talk to these, to these folks and to focus its effort and attention squarely on that, right? Like Liz, your organization has to have a narrow specific focus. Um, it's a big, big ask to, to, to ask organizations in the middle of the house being on fire to spend all of their time, energy and money, or even some of their time, energy and money trying to figure out how to go get this other group of people involved. And so um, all that's to say, the answer to that question is yes. So mm -hmm. I, I think what ends up happening over time is this. Number one, people get to un better understand who's actually involved. Number two, they learn about how we think through the work. They, you know, they read our material, they see our content um, and begin to build that relationship. And then number three, we show up. You know, we bring people to show up. So as an example, you know, we've put on a, a bunch of events with Planned Parenthood in Georgia uh, over this cycle and have helped contact tens of thousands of voters with them. And what we've done is bring them you know, bring in our guys to volunteer to support them. And that that is the key to our work is once you educate the guys, it's about mobilizing them to support partners. And that's really where things become um, simple 
because we become a value add so long as we don't screw up the other stuff along the way. So Liz, like, you know, speaking of sort of the fights that are ahead, would this be seeing this model sort of grow and like, could you imagine how this could be helpful in New Jersey and how would it, how would it fit into the work that already is going on? So, yeah, I think that activating men specifically would be very helpful in kind of the fights coming ahead. Um, You know, I'm just thinking about some of the organizations in New Jersey, as well as, I mean, the New Jersey Abortion Access Fund and how we aren't necessarily representative of the communities that, you know, Mm-hmm. are actually accessing abortion mm-hmm. or communities of color as well. Because again, I mean, you say you can't have racial justice without reproductive justice, but there's no such thing as reproductive justice without racial justice. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, one thing is, I think that there needs to be men, but I would say that even the organizations that are, you know, centered on women also just need to do a better job of centering women of color. Um, within our organizations. And so in some ways, sorry, I'm just thinking about, about (laughs) Uh, it's hard though. You're, 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 I I can, I I can, I can feel, I, I can sort of feel and hear you sort of turning on this, which is there's a real challenge in this movement in general about who is being prioritized, what issues are being prioritized. Um, Right. We have put the right to choose up top, right? Like protect Roe is up top. But functionally speaking, Roe doesn't exist for millions and millions of people already. Right. Low income women, rural women, women of color in particular, which is this. And, and then the people, who, the people in the organizations who are being prioritized um, are typically not those who are most impacted. So you add men into the mix and men for choice in the mix. It sort of creates this, you know, it sort of, it sort of, um, it it has you sort of thinking through all of those things. And that has been part of the challenge. Um, and so this is where it's really important. Like men for choice and a male ally should never be centered in the movement. We're just partners. We're, we're support. We're, you know, we're Brandon, you know, we're, we're Steve Kerr sitting in the corner who, who should occasionally shoot the open jump shot or we're Jack Haley sitting on the bench just to cheer on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, and I'm thinking, you know, if men want to be the ones writing addresses down on a ton of postcards for a statewide action or even a national action, that's really great. And getting as many voices in there is great. And it seems like you're doing this where you're also partnering and letting a lot of other organizations that are centered by women identifying organizations, women of color identifying organizations, um, and using your particular area and particular focus to really lift them up um, and, and make sure that you know their message is is amplified even more. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we always say to people, our strategy is what is supporting your strategy. Mm-hmm. We might not use the exact language you're using because I got to talk to Brandon, right? And we all, you know, everybody knows that Brandon's just a, you know, at least a step behind. <laughs> always at least one. <laughs> and you know, every woman out there who spent any time with a man and ever had this issue come up knows that they're six or seven steps behind, right? So you got to meet the audience where they are. You got to use language and a framework that like clicks for them because they don't know all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is really about how, especially for us, it is about how we, how we approach the work. We're not saviors. We're partners and supporters. We're not here to fix things. We're here because of an obligation to stand up for the rights of all people. And and from my perspective, I think there's two core arguments as to why we need more men to step up. The first is that the rule of politics is always about addition and more is always more. And Mm -hmm. so if we can get more people to knock doors, make phone calls, donate, uh, speak out, post on social media, that means our message is getting further. It's more powerful. We have more resources. 
uh, and obviously more voters, which we certainly need, right? More is ultimately more. And that's especially true really in, in any fight with a, any fight that involves injustice to a marginalized community, the, you know, you don't have structural power. So you certainly need allies to step up and help fill in that gap to, to correct the injustice. The, the second piece of this, though, is much deeper, and it's actually more critical to the long term of our work, which is the reason this is happening is because of something wrong inside of the inside of the male dominated culture in our society. Right. Like at its core, this is sexism, it's misogyny, it's racism that has signaled tolerated and perpetuated the idea that men with power have the right to tell you, Liz, what you can and can't do with your body. And that as a society, we think that's like moral and just and normal and acceptable. That problem is built in the way guys like Brandon and I engage and our peers. Mm -hmm. So if we don't do the culture change work, if we don't go into our communities directly and challenge those norms and put pressure on our people to do better, if we don't call out the assholes that believe and stand up on pedestals um, to rob you of those rights, then we are complicit just as white identifying allies have to go into their communities and not put the burden on black people to fix white supremacy. Male identifying allies have a specific role to play and have to play it inside of this space, which is we need to work with our boys and help our boys get their shit together because we are tolerating a whole lot of, uh, I'm going to cuss again, fuckery. (laughs) (laughs) And that fuckery is causing a whole lot of harm to a whole lot of people who don't have systemic power. Mm -hmm. And it's all based on some bullshit. Yeah. And I, I mean, kind of going off of that and you, you sparked something is, you know, it gets tiring to try to defend the rights that you have and that you are hoping and educating others. It gets tiring to always have to educate others. And so that's what allies are really good for is to do the educating. So it's not always on the person that's being harmed in the community. And what we're really talking about is shifting the Overton window of how the society even conceives of the issue, right? And so it's one thing to have more people who can engage politically and like, do the letter writing and do the calls and, you know, have the meetings with, you know, with male legislators and whatnot, or just, you know, un- unsupportive or you know, uh, opposing legislators. Um, but it's another thing to shift the society's co- concept and understanding of the issue altogether so that we don't have to do that stuff as much in the future, hopefully, right? Like if everybody just has a, a basic understanding of reproductive health, reproductive rights, and reproductive freedom uh, that is closer to the liberties that we are hoping everybody seeks and understands, then we won't have to do this work in the future nearly as much. You always have to defend the rights you have. And I think that's something that progressives are really learning, you know, this year is, uh, you know, is that just because we won some rights in the past and that we had some victories in the past doesn't mean that you can sort of let up and let your guard down because there's always going to be a fight to to sort of ensure that they stick around and that they are as you know as strong as they need to be for as many people as they need to be um but being able to have you know an operation and an effort where you're not just engaging men for the sake of hey you need to support this but for the sake of hey you need to understand this better and you you have a misunderstanding of this issue that is really doing a lot of harm whether you whether or not you mean to and like you said we're, we are having the thing the points we're making are the same points that we've made on this podcast previously with regards to racial equity and justice we're just making them now with regards to reproductive freedom and health and and, and rights and all that type of stuff and so i guess i just want to i want to get to sort of the conversation of you know now that we are in a world where you have 
a Brett Kavanaugh on the court. You have an Amy Coney Barrett on the court. A lot of the <laughs> nightmares and major concerns that uh, you know advocates for for choice uh, have had for a long time. Now, now those nightmares have become reality. What is the priority, right? What is what is the strategy, and how do we not just be in a defensive position where we're trying to hold the line, but actually actively push back and try to get some expansion of rights um, where, and, and just show that it's, it's not, you know, I guess the best defense is sometimes a good offense, right? And not just accept, hey, this is the situation now. Hey, states are going to be losing row. You know, how, what's 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 the game plan now? And, and Liz, I want you to go first just because you've been, I know you've, you've had a couple of meetings this week with folks and been talking with folks about things, but what's the game plan for you? And then, Orin, I want to hear from the, the men for choice, you know, angle as well. So, I mean, I think the goal right now on the federal level, perhaps getting, you know, some more pro-choice folks, you know, in the Senate, in the legislature, getting Biden in. Um, but also we're going to have to push fights on the statewide level. I think that's, you know, giving credit to the pro-life movement or, you know, the pro-birth movement is that they did a really good job of pushing regulations and laws that slowly eroded away rights. Um, at the state level. At the state level. Mm -hmm. Even New Jersey for a while had what we consider TARP um, regulations where in our health code, abortion providers had to meet different regulations than any other health provider. Um, oh, they had like additional barriers. They, they had, had additional to... barriers. Mm -hmm. And just this year, we were able to um, have the Board of Health here in New Jersey roll back those those TARP regulations. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so this is going to have to happen on a statewide level and um, really activating state organizations uh, is important. Mm -hmm. It's almost like um, one of the uh, examples I use oftentimes is when Chris Christie became governor of New Jersey, there was a, there had been a, um, a campaign to implement paid sick leave laws. And when Chris Christie, he won a second term. And so, you know, the folks in that paid sick leave campaign just said, okay, well, we, we know we're not going to get it at the state level. Like we know the legislature could pass a paid sick leave law and he would veto it no matter what. So we're going to focus on passing paid sick leave um, ordinances and legislation in the biggest cities in the state. And then hopefully by the time the political situation and landscape at the state level changes, will have created enough momentum that it becomes an expectation that the state would do it, right? Um, so it's just taking, figuring out where you can get wins and then doing as much as you can to get those wins. Um, you know, Oren, is that is that a similar perspective for you or is there is there even, you know, more different, different stuff? Yeah, well, <clears throat> as I mentioned before, in a lot of ways, Roe v. Wade is already gone for tens of millions of people. I mean, it's there, but functionally it's gone. 60% of the states in America are defined as hostile to abortion, according to the Guttmacher Institute, as we, as we sit here. Something like 90% of the counties in America don't have an abortion clinic in them. So, so the right to choose still exists thanks to the privacy uh, protections given by Roe, but the access to abortion care uh, or to access an abortion is very difficult in many, many places. And this fundamentally is a state level fight at this point. It's not to say there's not a fight to be had at the national level. You know, certainly there are laws you could pass in Congress. Um, we could, in theory, at the federal level, move against the move to overturn the Hyde Amendment which would be a massive, massive move. And I, I would assume if we could somehow manage to end up on January 21st, 2020 with all three chambers, there will be a lot of pressure from the uh, broader movement to overturn Hyde and ensure that low-income women and low-income people who get their health care from Medicaid can access abortion in America, ending the effective you know, two-tiered system of access to health care on this question. But at the state level... Even if you did that, if there were no providers and or you banned it or you criminalized it, 
it doesn't really do you any favors, right? So there's so sure there's two fights. There are states like New Jersey that have to go on offense and have to push aggressive expansionary measures. And there are states where we are going to have to do years, if not decades worth of fighting to first get enough power to stop bad laws and then try to win more elections over time to be able to finally create good laws in those places. You know, Georgia is one of those states where we might we might wake up again in January with control of at least one chamber, which would allow us to stop bad laws, but it won't fix the bans that are already there. Colorado is a state where we can expand. New Jersey is a state that we can expand. If we get, you know, if we do well in Michigan, we can expand. Illinois still has a little bit more work that we have to do. But in Illinois, we overturned the Hyde Amendment in 2017 through HB 40. We passed the Reproductive Health Act in 2019, which removed abortion from the criminal code and codified abortion as both health care and a, and a fundamental right in the state. Um, we're now working on the repeal of a parental notification uh, law to make sure that that young people who are in unhealthy, unsafe environments can get an abortion um, without putting their lives and health and wellness at risk by telling potentially toxic adults in their life. Um, so, you know, there's there's that piece. The other thing that I would say here is th- there's there's maybe two or three other small things to mention. One, we're going to have to provide much more in terms of funding and resources for organizations like Liz's. Mm. The, the abortion networks, the support networks that provide logistical service, transportation, emotional and mental wellness support, you know, these small community-based organizations are going to need more, are going to need more funding. That's just, you know, number one. And that's not a legislation question. That's an us and our collective will and intention question. Number two, um, we're going to have to deal with the fact that in many states, the access to the healthcare facilities, even where the laws are good, might not be strong. For instance, one of the things that's happening in this country is that uh, religious-based hospitals are gobbling up other hospitals, often in less populated areas. And so there are large swaths of the country where the only hospital you know, in a corner of Illinois is a religious hospital that refuses to provide uh, abortion. So it can be legal. It can be protected. Medicaid can cover it. But if you, if you're a rural woman in America, you might live in a place where you'd have to still drive hundreds of miles to get there. So from that perspective, the sort of the next line of courage would be whether or not our state legislatures or municipal leaders would be willing to basically prevent any form of tax credit or government funding from going to an entity who does not provide full and complete reproductive health care. That's actually um, one of the issues here in New Jersey is as we are, like you said, you know, New Jersey is one of the states that's got to be a little bit aggressive here about expanding reproductive health and rights. Um, And we're trying to do that. But one of the challenges is you have a lot of legislators who, you know, support doing it by statute and like doing it in name. But like when you get to the point of funding for these things, they say, oh, no, no, we're not. We're not going to fund this. You know, we're not going to make sure this is actually real. And I don't know how many times I got to say math is real uh, in, in my life. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if, if we're not going to fund it, then it's, it doesn't exist. Right. To the, to the point that your points you're making. And also, if we're going to continue to put dollars, public dollars towards entities that refuse to uh, respect and enable, you know, full rights that are afforded to women and those who can give birth. Um, that's a choice that we should probably revisit as well, um, because it is it is a scenario where, you know, you talk about rural areas of the, of the country not having a lot of, you know, um, having access issues just because of their, the level of remoteness that they experience. You know, New Jersey is the densest state in the country, so the sort of the level of remoteness is not a major, not a major issue here. 
but even for the only reason I bring this up is even for areas of the country that don't have remote, you know, access challenges, if the funding is not there to ensure that your the, the place that you can go can actually provide you with the service that you need in a healthy way and in an authentic manner, then again, like you're saying, row does not exist in, in a real right. sense. The the unsaid thing here that I should say is this is true in rural communities, also true in black and brown communities, which have been intentionally disinvested from. Right, exactly. Across the board, right? Like, with this, including this, this topic here. Yeah, yeah. Um, one question I had just to cover is also, you know, as recognition of and support for transgender individuals has increased over the past several years, how has that changed? the reproductive rights movement and conversation, right? Like even some of the language we're using here today, you know, previously people would just say women, uh, but now we're saying, you know, we're not, we're saying not just women, but also people who can give birth. We're trying to be, you know, recognizing and inclusive in our language because language is very important. What are the other ways sort of tact, tactfully, uh, tactfully, tactically, concretely, let's put it that way, <laughs> um, that sort of, you know, awareness of, and support for transgender individuals has changed the fight for reproductive freedom? You know, this is one, you know, sort of go back, Liz, to like the earlier struggle about where, where are, what is, what are, what's the role of a man in this space? What's the role of a white woman in this space? Who's being censored and what's the conversation? This is sort of, this is it, right? Like this is the truest, fullest question. And, you know, my general sense, I'm curious what your experience is personally, Liz, is we're, we're, we're very much at the beginning. This is a nascent conversation inside of the community that language is starting to shift, but I'm not sure that that in and of itself is necessarily, you know, like the, the, the representation the the role the leadership roles sort of like the power the funding that stuff is in from my perspective well lagging and i would say that for our organization in particular um you know one of the challenges that we've had and i and i think this is a real challenge is concerns over tokenization and so what we what we have tried to do in the way that we try to engage it is at every, at every opportunity to have a conversation behind closed doors to better educate ourselves and to bring that information to others, we do so without sort of expecting anybody else to sort of put their name on this or to engage. And we, we just try to be conscious about the language. You know, we, we transition back and forth between men, guys, male allies, male identifying allies. But as a whole, you know, it seems like we're just the entire space is just starting with language and like everything else is, is, is lagging. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I mean, it was just a couple of years ago where we did a complete, the New Jersey abortion access funded kind of a complete overhaul of all of our, you know, mission statement, vision statements, all of the language that we used to be very, very, um, non-gendered. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a purposeful decision. Um, but I think part of this conversation is also, you know, ensuring that the places that these individuals are getting care are supportive of mm. individuals who, you know, identify as trans or LGBT, mm. um, you know, and I think in healthcare generally, there's been a big push of ensuring that these spaces are safe, that physicians and nurses understand and have an understanding of um, these patients that may be trans. Um, And that, you know, certainly includes, you know, clinics, abortion clinics. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of, you know, an abortion fund, what we're able to do is really start pushing that language and pushing the, the, the clinics that we work with, um, to to make sure that they're being very um, open and welcoming to trans individuals, so trans individuals feel like they can actually go to the clinics and get the care that they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
again, very similar to the conversations we have around just, you know, how when black people go to the emergency room, they don't get, you know, they're, they're not, their pain is not taken seriously and, you know, they don't get the healthcare they need. Um, can, there's a lot of things to take from that conversation and apply to this conversation of just recognizing, to put it very bluntly, recognizing the humanity of trans individuals and not treating them as separate and making sure that when they are saying they have healthcare needs, that those healthcare needs are recognized and you know affirmed and something's done about it, right? And so that is, it is yet another thing that gets back to A, funding, uh, B, awareness, uh, and C, just you know, a lot of the work that Oren's doing through Men for Choice of shifting the Overton window of understanding, right? And I think a lot of people just, if you were to go up to, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be uh, sort of make a blanket statement here, but like, I, if you were to go up to my father, and you know, he's he's in his late seventies now, and just talk about you know the sort of reproductive health and abortion health needs of you know trans individuals, he would just his brain would break for like five seconds, right? And like, not because he's trying to be a jerk or an asshole, but like it's just not a concept that he's given given any thought to he's been exposed to any of that type of stuff right and so just really you're starting from ground ground you know the, the ground floor level with a lot of folks when it comes to this conversation and i think a lot of the challenges you know or into some of your points about the work you do through men for choices how do you meet people where they are in a way that they hear you and don't feel as though they're being attacked or as though they're being treated as you know they are wrong for not knowing yeah, and I mean, going off of that, I would say that a lot of the leadership in these organizations for a while have been older folks. Mm. You know, our abortion providers are generally older physicians. Mm. Um, these folks are going to retire, and who's taking their place? Mm. Um, you know, and should we have our schools, um, mm. you know, centering abortion care more deeply within their mm. within their you know medical programs? But that's probably another conversation as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we do have a large population, just like we have a large population of like older white women who never had to center women of color. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's on the younger generation and it's on the, the older generation as well, but to really push mm -hmm. um, to make sure that these communities, yeah. you know, are centered in the conversation and that no further harm is done. And a, a lot of, a, a large part of our go forward strategies actually sort of, I don't want to say concedes, but it, it recognizes that the older we get, the harder it is for the average person to fundamentally reconceive yeah. how the world works. Um, and so, you know, a large, large portion of our energy moving forward is going to be, centered around youth slash college programming. Mm -hmm. How do we bring more young male identifying allies from 18 to 25 into meaningful conversation with our organizers? How do we have person-to-person -person conversations about abortion access, reproductive freedom, misogyny, allyship um, with more guys in that space because they're in such a impressionable environment, this is where their ideas are really forming. And if we can develop, you know, more aware, more informed, young future leaders amongst their peers and in their communities who speak about this, think about this, engage in this the right way, we can have an effect it's going to take time for that to sort of work its way through society, but the work of men for choice, you know, and really the reality of where we are in the fight for reproductive freedom is, uh, especially with what's about to happen at the Supreme court, you know, this is, this is a decades long struggle. So it's not to say we shouldn't try with your dad. We should, <laughs> it's to say that we should do our best to help your dad, arrive at a place that is aligned with what we need without necessarily, you know, 
forcing language onto him and frameworks onto him that he can't process. You're like, dad, do you believe that all people should be free to control their own bodies? Yes. Great. That means any effort to stop that is harmful and and opposed to your values. And we can work on the next step after that. And at the same time, we can work with folks who are more open, um, who are more for, you know, maybe further along in their, their journey or because of the generation they were brought in, brought up in more aware of these things and get them, get them ready to lead the right way amongst, among their peers. And so that's sort of how we're, you know, we're thinking that we we've had, we've had issues just how do I talk about misogyny with 40 year olds? Mm-hmm. Really? We did, we had a forum called, it was called the do better forum, which I think is good framing. Then the subtext title was like, deconstructing toxic masculinity and some other stuff. And it was the least we've, it was the least attended of our, of our educational forums when we had in-person educational forums in large part, because I think our audience felt attacked right away. If we just called it the do better forum and then talked about these things when they got there, I think we would have gotten more people there. And that was an important lesson for us of sort of calibrating the public message, right? Like, my joke with with guys when we're in these conversations is like our job is to help each other be a little bit less of an asshole each day they understand that like don't be an asshole don't be that guy right like if i if i immediately start off by saying you have to deconstruct toxic masculinity they're going to look at me and be like one what are you talking about in two oh boy here comes the attack mm-hmm. right so it's now, that being said, we have curriculum that's all about directly talking about misogyny and toxic masculinity and misogynoir and these things, but that's not the starting point. Mm-hmm. I just want to close on one issue, uh, which is that, you know, generally, uh, I think a major point that I hear when it comes to this topic is that, you know, well, if you really, if folks who claim to be pro-life really cared about seeing those outcomes, well, they would support abortion access, right? Because abortion access reduces the number of abortions that occur. They increase the number of safe abortions, right? Like it's, it's a better, it, it improves the welfare of everybody all around. And so, you know, they're being disingenuous uh, by, by saying that they're pro-life because their policies lead to more abortions, bar none. And so then you end up in a space where people say they're not really pro-life, they're pro-birth. Um, I'm trying to phrase this in a way that's not like dismissive, but it's it's almost like is is there any part of the strategy here where it is it is trying to engage that in that conversation legitimately and authentically and honestly and actually say what is it that we're trying to accomplish here, or is it now a consideration that for most of those folks it's not even about you know abortion, it's about controlling women's bodies, and so by entertaining the conversation of you know, abortion access and all that type of stuff, we're taking away from the real issue here. Am I am I am I being clear in my in my question? Yeah, I think you are. And I mean, one, I think there's a certain group of people that, yes, you are never going to get them to become even a little bit pro-choice. No matter the arguments, they're always gonna they're gonna say the moment the egg is fertilized, that is a life and you have to protect that life at all costs, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Looking at some of my relatives, mm-hmm. to be perfectly frank. But I think for a lot of people, I mean, abortion has, as you said, Orn, a large base of support. Now, people may have different feelings on, you know, when or where, but I think part of it is, you know, we have to get better at messaging. One, I think telling stories of people, I, I always look at the articles get they get passed around through social media where it's an actual person who had to have an abortion and this was their experience um and i think those stories are really important to get people to one humanize this um you know there's a saying and i would love to i i can't i don't know who started it and i wish i did but everybody loves somebody who had an abortion Um, and I think one framing the conversation like that, you know, somebody who's had an abortion, 
they are, you know, they had their reasons to do it regardless of, you know, what you would do in that situation. Um, but you love that person still. Mm -hmm. And so because you love that person, you know, there needs to be this kind of respect for that decision that they made that was between them and their families. You know, if they have, if they believe in a higher power between their doctor, mm -hmm. um, or when you're engaging folks, do you, do you entertain the conversation? So as a, as a starting point, if you wanted to reduce abortions, if your ultimate goal was to decrease the number of abortions that occurred in this country, you would pursue the policies that the Democratic Party the progressive movement and the pro-choice movement or the movement for reproductive freedom and justice pursue. You would focus on uh, healthy, age-appropriate, accurate sexual education. You would expand access to contraception. You would expand access to birth control. If you did those three things, it's overwhelmingly clear from data from both America as well as other countries that as those three things happen, abortions actually get down, go down. People make uh, people who are more informed, better educated, with better access to contraceptive contraceptive care, as well as to, um, to contraception, mm -hmm. to birth control, have fewer unwanted pregnancies. It's pretty straightforward which is a huge signal that this has nothing to do with decreasing abortion. The problem is that about 25% of America is pushing a very narrow worldview onto the rest of the country. That worldview is built, as I said before, on racism, on sexism, on misogyny. They have been effective over decades and centuries of um, telling myths, truths, outright lies, myths in such a way as to stigmatize abortion enough that when you get into this conversation, what ends up happening is, well, what about after 20 weeks? I'm cool up to 20 weeks. That's the thing I get from guys a lot. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what happens after 20 weeks or why after 20 weeks, but it seems like a reasonable place to get to to. To get like, well, well, can't you agree that that would make a lot of sense? And so that is not based on them having some deep seated knowledge of this issue. It's based on just the 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 the, you know, the atmosphere, what it is that they hear and trying to arrive at a position that seems. You know, relatively respectful and moderate, yeah. if you remove that 25 percent of America. I think that you'd have completely different laws because the vast majority of Americans think abortion should be legal in most or all cases. The vast majority of Americans think that we should expand and not contract accurate, age-appropriate uh, sex education. The vast majority of Americans think we should make it easier for people to access contraception. And the byproduct would be fewer abortions. So the challenge is that when you look at the politics of the two movements, the anti-abortion force pro-birth movement has demonized sex. It has demonized sexuality. It has placed the burden of sex and sexuality onto the woman. How dare you show me your cleavage? Your skirt was too low. You are such a temptress, but you should be responsible for the sperm that I put inside you if that sperm and your egg hook up. Right. Like mm -hmm. that is effectively where we are. And so their goal, and it's not even a hidden goal, like their goal is not just to overturn Roe. It is to ban and criminalize abortion. If Roe gets overturned, when Roe gets overturned, you will see criminalization bills signed into law in the American states. It's going to happen. If you don't believe me, if you think I'm hyperbolic, just wait. They're coming. That's what they want to do. I mean, it's criminalized already with miscarriages and women going to jail already for having, you know, perhaps having miscarriages. We don't know the circumstances, but 
know. Right. If somebody tries to give themselves an abortion because you denied them the right to have access to an abortion, of course, there have been women thrown in jail and charged with 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 right. crimes. So all that is to say that, like, at the core, it's not about abortion. It's about control. Mm-hmm. It's about a woman's place in society. It's about sex and sexuality. It is about the religious proclivities uh, and the pushing of a narrow group's very uh, aggressive religious framework of how the world should and shouldn't be on to the rest of us. And it's about the marriage of uh, of a very small faction of America with a very large uh, political party. And that marriage is breaking down the healthcare system for people who can get pregnant in pursuit of these goals. So in a general sense, should we have a conversation about reasonable compromise? You know, sure. <laughs> you, but like, let's be honest here. There is no position of reasonable compromise. Number one. And number two, my position, our position is the reasonable compromises stay the fuck out of everybody else's decision-making and trust anybody to make the best decision for their lives and their families. Cause your opinion has no bearing on my life and should have no bearing on my laws or on my, on, on the law. And if my wife and I decide to get an abortion because we want one and don't want to have kids need to get an abortion, I've got a 21 week pregnant wife. You know, anybody who's gotten to this stage of the pregnancy knows you're naming kids. You're talking about nurseries. Uh, she's got this like little mini, I don't know. It's not like a sonogram thing, but we can hear the heartbeat. Like every night we check, we talk about the kid. We talk to the kid. The last thing in the world that we would ever want is to have to have something go wrong, but like things happen and life changes. What if, what if you were 20 weeks pregnant? You know, because we talk a lot about about uh, healthcare related, you know, late late in pregnancy abortion. What if you're 20 weeks pregnant and a pandemic hits and you lose your job and you already have kids? Does that person not have the right to make a decision for their family? And shouldn't we allow them to make that choice without judgment and without interference if they believe that they cannot bring in a, a child into this world right now? Like that, that's the debate we're having. And so from the standpoint of compromise, um, I think that we can have like a normal conversation about these things. The challenge is when you're having that conversation, it is built on so much bullshit on so many lies and on a, um, on a socialized bedrock of problematic frameworks that are inherently racist and are inherently sexist. I do, I, I do have one last just like kernel here is this is one issue where, you know, we, we talk about and a lot of our episodes have been sort of comparing America to other countries. I never actually hear about how abortion access in America compares to other countries. How does it compare to other countries? How is abortion covered under Canadian healthcare? Is it like, are, are we like, as a lot of the other things we've talked about, are we like super out of step with the international community here? I actually can't claim to be an expert on these this particular question. The only one that jumps to my mind right away is that I'm, uh, and I apologize if I'm actually misquoting this because, but there's just this thing that sticks in my head. I'm pretty sure that Ireland, like the Irish Catholic country, yeah. Ireland, has more progressive laws and um, protections for the right to abortion than America does as a country. Well, like, now they do. Yes. Yeah. But now, that was after huge national protest right. because right, a drained. woman died yeah. because yeah. their mm-hmm. access before was you know so horrendous right that was like right. two years ago that was yeah that was about two years ago and you know if you're behind the catholic if you're behind the catholics <laughs> like a country full of catholics but i think that's why we need groups that focus on specific individuals we have catholics for choice yeah great great org this is to talk to Catholics about what their faith means mm-hmm. and why it mm-hmm. is, you know, a pro-choice mm-hmm. faith mm-hmm. and why those two decisions and those two things don't, you know, 
aren't butting heads, but in fact work together mm -hmm. in unison. Mm -hmm. Right. So we got Catholics for choice. We got men for choice. I'm launching Brandon's for choice. Thank you. Thank you. I need, I need specific attention. <laughs> He's very problematic. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, with, with anything, right? Like, and we've been on both sides of this. If you're not part of the community most impacted, right? If you're, as a Jewish man, I want allies. But like, you can screw some things up unintentionally if you mm -hmm. don't do it right. Um and so, you know, I think allyship is critical. I think allyship is really, really important to movements for justice, right? Fundamentally, if you are marginalized, as you, you don't have a, a majority control of the systems of power that makes you marginalized, which means you need people from the majority, from the power structure to be with you. Um, and there's just, you know, there's a right and wrong way to do it. And Men for Choice has not always done it right. And we will not always do it right. We will screw things up. And, you know, that's part of the reason why I said at the beginning, one of the things I'm most proud of, um, you know, and I, I would list this even over the laws that we've helped play like a real important support role in passing. I'm, I want to think I'm most proud of is that we have been able to absorb feedback and shift the way we do our works so that we're constantly showing up in as close to the right way as possible uh, for our partners, because if you are going to be in this space and you are going to do this work, you do have a huge responsibility to folks like Liz, to the women leading these organizations, to the individuals most impacted, um, especially as we we are moving forward in a much more um, justice and equity frame direction uh, as a broader movement. Right. Just progressive movements in general being much more attuned to the need to center the people who are closest to the pain that we're actually going to make any progress on addressing these challenges and these, these issues. So um, I thank you both for a very, very robust conversation on a very tough topic. Um, and it is one where, you know, we're going to be active for years to come now, just because, you know, at, at the very least, because of the way that the, the Supreme court is set up and, you know, for me at least, I, I think about where we are now at the Supreme Court and how that has been a goal and priority of the conservative right for decades, right? And they have they have moved in a fashion, even when they had setbacks, to always focus on advancing that goal. And I think one of my takeaways from that is, and I think Orrin, you, we, we share this frustration, Liz, I know we do, is a lot of times progressives will take a step back and then just throw their hands up rather than say, okay, this is a setback, but now, now where we can, now where can we move now? Now where can we get a win? How can, how can we move forward? Right. And so, you know, what, what, what do we want our country to look like in 40 years and what are the things necessary to get that done? And, you know, you got to play defense in certain areas, but a lot of places, good, a good defense is a good offense. So I hope here in New Jersey, we can do things we got to do to play our part uh and maybe we'll have a men for choice new jersey chapter soon you know only only if we have leaders willing to stand up and do the work and you know now i'm looking at you brandon but the yes. one thing i would say is um this is the lesson from illinois we we had majorities in both chambers and it was incredibly hard to pass the laws that we passed because yes. just because you got a d on the side of your name doesn't mean you're down to ride, especially on this. There are still a lot of politicians in the Democratic Party who think that supporting reproductive freedom is a losing issue in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. Um, I had to I had to call out a leader in Illinois at a public forum in 2019 for saying that the pro-choice movement needed to do more to rally the base in support of this law. And I think I said something like, if you want to tell the women of Illinois that they haven't done enough after what they did for you in 2018, be my guest. But I think you and I are misreading this election. If this is what you think the message is, they've told you what to do. Now it's on you to figure out how to get, how, how to go get this done. And it is going to, it's going to need, you know, even a handful of guys in New Jersey talking with the right state legislators 
could really make a big difference with some of those finicky people. Um, and so it's not about mass. It's sometimes just about the right targeted strategy, because when it comes to passing laws, math is real. And if you got 100 people in a chamber, the only thing that matters is 51. Yep. Right. And so, um, you know, you'll have your work cut out for you in New Jersey to get get the things done you need to. And I'm going to be checking back in with Liz to make sure that you, you specifically, Brandon, are showing up fully, unapologetically and unconditionally supporting the leaders of this movement and all those most impacted in the fights ahead. <laughs> Liz, I'm not putting the burden on you. Trust me. I, I'm going to be holding him accountable. I'm not putting the burden on you. His accountability, buddy. I'm, I'm his accountability, buddy. I'm, I was kidding about putting the burden back on you. That's the wrong way to do this. I'm holding you accountable every time just, we talk, Brandon. I just got millionaire sex done, so now I can uh, now now it's on to the next one, and this will be a priority for us. It's yep. been a priority, right? We we got we were a major part in getting Thrive New Jersey, which is a coalition here, yeah. off the ground. Um, but like you said, you know we have both chambers here in New Jersey. Yeah, it is still banging wall to get folks to do the obvious right thing. Yeah. You use the right word though. Our goal, like I'm, we don't ask guys to make this their top priority or their only priority. We ask them to make it a priority, Mm -hmm. right? Like you can have other issues. You don't need to like go to the extent that, you know, some of us have gone to, but is this a priority? If it's a priority, you will make it something you focus on. And if it's not, you're going to treat it as somebody else's issue. Yeah. It's great to have champions, but you know, we don't necessarily need everyone to be a champion. We need people to support it when it needs to be supported. Right. And speak up. And speak up. Be Steve Kerr. <laughs> Hit the <laughs> open jump shot when it's time and otherwise just cheer people on. Be ready to make that three and then get, you know, lauded for the rest of your life and then become a, become a coach because of it. Uh, <laughs> in the future. Rebound, play defense, pass the ball. <laughs> you know fundamentals get out of get out of the way and make sure that the guy is blocking the way get out of the way too yep and make sure that when jordan needs to take the shot he takes the shot um well thank you both i appreciate pleasure thank you for inviting me Um, absolutely anytime i'll see you uh a couple seconds with and uh folks we're gonna i'm gonna try to get this episode up soon but um you know follow us on twitter at whp podcast uh, please give us a five-star rating on, on iTunes. I hear that makes a difference for us. Um, and we will be back relatively soon with a pre-election episode because uh, there's some things we got to go over and we want to talk about the policy landscape uh, that exists. Uh, should, the, you know, should President Trump win re-election or should, President, uh, should Vice President Biden uh, win the election? This is pretty drastic differences between the two so we're going to go over all that but uh stay tuned and we'll see you soon thank you